going guys i'm zeke and i'm jay and you're listening to the cinema sideshow podcast episode 73 Woohoo! there's a mario noise Woohoo! we made a lot of these we have made a lot of them you know what i was we were doing mario no not mario oh it was like donald duck and mickey mouse we were doing mickey mouse voices friday night or saturday night i should say Uh, saturday wait were we i was with uh, morgs Okay. But yeah, you know what that uh, means, guys? We are back in town. Yeah, we went to the, the bar for the first time in s- nearly three months, which is pretty crazy. We made it. And I got written off, but it was great. <laughs> that you did, sir. Yeah, what's up, Doc? What's um, up, Doc? Yeah, no, we are doing the Mickey Mouse. We are like, ha It was a lot of I fun. It. it was a lot of fun. We had a lot of drinks. We had a good time, good laughs was really cool to just have a sit-down fun time. And uh, we'll probably do it again this week because it's your birthday this week. Yeah, it's my birthday in two days. It's yeah. exciting. Last year we did, which is crazy now that we can like talk about birthday weeks in context of recording this show. Wow, that's insane. I know. But last year, both our birthdays were on the day of release. So we did Detective Pikachu on my birthday and we did uh, Animal Kingdom on your birthday. Oh, there we go. So That won't happen for a long time though, I don't think. No, another seven years. Yeah, huh? Great. <laughs> or six years. Maybe six with the leap. Leap. Wait, yeah. this year's a leap. Was it? Uh, yeah, it was. So maybe. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll six. Yeah, we'll still hit a leap, but you're right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Time is weird. Time is weird. But we're not here to talk about time. We're here to talk about <laughs> movies, Jake, and TV shows. What oh. have you caught in the last week? Oh man, that was like a game show host voice. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so I've had a pretty busy week. Not in viewing, fortunately. Unfortunately, I should say. Um, I've been working. I've been crazy. I've been chugging at some stuff. Something I'll talk about in the career update, which I only told you about for the first time like the other day. Mm-hmm. So I'll bring it back up later. I'll explain why I have been watching nothing, Zeke. Wowzers. But there is one thing I caught that I was able to, to talk a bit about at work because uh, some of my friends at work love Rick and Morty. And... This week, this past week, was the season four finale. So I was like, all right, I'm going to spend a night, sit back, watch episodes six through to ten in completion in a binge. Because, I mean, that was my problem with Rick and Morty season three and the first half of four was watching them weekly. Different yeah. experience from watching the first two seasons like in one big binge. So um, okay. I think it was a good thing for me to do that. I laughed a lot. It was very enjoyable. I think, I think I'm liking the show more the fact that it's starting to tie back loose ends again. Like, it's bringing in the wider lore of, like, you know, the clone Beth stuff, the the bird person Tammy stuff from season two. Like, it's weaving those plot elements back into the maze, at least for the finale, at least for the last okay. episode. But um, that stuff, I was like, I like when they do that, that the wider stories. I think I still need to watch the last episode or two. Um, unfortunately, I can't agree with you. I do not like... Oh, really? Uh, I don't like that show so, anymore. Wait, so you're up to date mostly? Yeah, I've seen... Uh, I think the last one I watched was the Vat of Acid episode. Oh, really? You didn't like that? Uh, no, I'm I'm kind of over this show. I think the show it has it feels like it's eating its own tail. You know, it's a snake eating its own tail. It, it feels very meta to the point of annoyance. I agree. Yeah, self indulgence. I think it just for me, it's like as someone who's watched Dan Harmon. You know, as someone who's a huge community fan. You had it on when I walked in the room. Um, I did. Uh, I just finished season three again. Oh, there you go. Um, Jesus Christ. Smashing through it. Yeah, well, it's really easy to watch that show. Right. And I think, you know, if you if you 
I'm, I like grew up with Harmon's like the show that broke him through to mainstream, which mm. was that show. And then you move into Rick and Morty. Um, and I was like you, I watched the first two seasons in binge succession. Yeah. Big, big chunks. Um, and enjoyed them. Uh, didn't enjoy them ever as much as community, but there was definitely its own separate, uh, enjoyment to it. But I don't know this last season, it's become so for lack of a better expression up its own ass that I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. I just don't like it anymore. I don't like things that are like, I like walking the tightrope of meta narrative, but when it engulfs the entirety of a show, it just feels like a bunch of crap. <laughs> well, here's the thing, because I, I didn't know you watched or were up so much up to date. I mean, you might as well just watch the last two. I will. No, I definitely will. Okay. I'm not going to stop. Right. Um, unlike another show that had released its fourth season this week. Uh, oh, I, uh, I still haven't watched that yet. <laughs> uh, we are talking oh. about 13 Reasons Why, though. Oh, I'll get uh, to it. But... It's not 13 episodes. Thank God. How it's many only, is It's it? only 10 Although the the last ep- guess how long the last episode is? How long? How many minutes? Guess ninety. Ninety nine minutes. So why not just release it in two parts? <laughs> That's a really good point. Why not? Like uh, make it eleven episodes then. But uh, whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No. Like, I've, of course, I will watch the last two because it's only an extra forty minutes of mm. time. But I just haven't found that much enjoyment in it. It felt like those first two, three episodes accomplished literally nothing other than they were just cyclical sort of situation. And Well, I think now that I'm starting to get back into that mood of like Rick and Morty is not... like I like when it gets continuous, but the fact that they're sort of self-contained, fun little stories, I think that makes it easy for me to be like, yeah, it's enjoyable. Yeah, I, I to me, I, I think if a show... It becomes regression, though. I'm sorry, it, it, when you progress beyond... When a show starts, it's allowed to have that sort of cyclical nature where it's like, you know, not a lot happens from start to end. But when you move past, if you if your entire show is just cyclical storytelling, like it's, you know... I mean, they're allowed to do that. It's not like not allowed to do that. Yeah, but it, no, you're allowed to. I just don't think... When you're moving forward and you're giving characters more depth and then you go back to mm. not... No, I see what you mean. ...giving characters depth and just they're just cartoon characters doing stuff or they're sitcom characters just going back, then it doesn't feel like I'm gaining anything out of the show anymore. I'm not I'm not more invested. Now, if, if the show was nothing but, you know, each episode was an isolated incident and there was no overarching narrative and it was just fun antics involving a vat of acid or something mm. like that, then the show would be fine. But the show has tried to give... As over... Earlier seasons has tried to add depth to characters and give certain characters stories and arcs, and then kind of has just thrown it out the window in in the last season or so. And it's sort of just mm. for me, it just it, it's not my not my cup of tea anymore. I, I agree, it feels more stagnant now. Like it, f- it feels like it's taking longer to get those character moments and those mm. overarching story revisits. But again, that's part of the fact that they're taking way too long to make these shows. I mean, this yeah. season alone took, what, two to three years? I, th- I think for me, me, and it's like people that might be like, oh, it's just an animation show. And it's like, I'm sorry, but like, you know, not earlier this year did BoJack wrap up. And and I mean, if you look at the early, the first season of BoJack, BoJack runs that formula of being kind of like conflict resolution in the... the and then only after, I think, what, like episode six or seven? It was pretty is when quick, it, though. 
Like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It's, I it's, mean, Todd, Todd, what gets arrested in like episode five? He's still in jail in episode six. Like, they they get to it pretty quick. The continuity stuff. Yeah, yeah, so, I I agree. But yeah. they're even the first few is just sort of a collection of of skits just to kind of get you to know the characters. But yeah, they do de- dive into the the mm. depth and the character arcs pretty early on in that show. Um, and if you just look at any sitcoms, like the first season of How I Met Your Mother, is is pretty isolated incidents and only really has right. one thread in its first season only in its second season onwards do they start to give more depth to other characters and kind of formulate a story and i mean i'm not saying the stuff in how i met your mother is deep like super deep like meta commentary deep but it's it's still there and it never tries to be more than what it is so um I, I, I guess it's it feels like it's always been... It was a step back to the point where I just don't find the show funny anymore, I guess. That's correct. I found it really funny, though. I don't know. Like, just a lot of the... I don't know. He, that train episode was just a collection of random skits. No, but here's the thing. I was going to ask you this about the train episode, because I, I watched it thinking Zeke will fucking love this episode. Nah, I didn't like it at all. It is literally the most meta discussion of narrative conception, and you are a huge fan of Dan Harmon's narrative structure. Yeah. that's li- There's literally a circle in the episode where Rick's pointing at how it works. I'm but like, be, why wouldn't you like but that? It's, but it's... Because it comes, uh, it comes back to that self indulgence thing where it feels like he, like when he's acknowledging his own storytelling device, that to me just feels sort of like uh, self congratulatory. Like, look, at stroking his own ego, being like, look, I, like I'm literally acknowledging this story device that people have. And I know he has this weird sort of like, cynic- he's so cynical too in the way he makes stuff, like. Like, he's even in that episode, he's acknowledging kind of the stupidity of his own storytelling device. And I just to me, it's kind of confusing. Well, it feels like the, it feels like not the stupidity of his own storytelling device because, like, it is it's just an altered version of a wider accepted hero's journey. And the fact of the matter is, he's making fun of tropes that are just seen over and over and over again. So, I don't think he's making fun of himself. It's weird, but it's like because if you watch Community Jake, you know. He makes fun of those tropes, but he does it in an intellectual way. Whereas now, it just sort of feels like he's doing. It I, feels I... intellectual. It feels too dense, though. If it's a very dense, and it was the same with the um, what was the episode they did? The heist stuff at the start of the season. Like it's just yeah. so dense. It's like, whoa! I need to watch that a second time. Yeah, I, I mean, don't know. I had I actually watched that train episode twice, and I watched it once with with Morgan, and he literally at the end of the episode, he's like, "I don't know what just happened," like it, like. Mm. And, you know, for people like me and you who have a little bit of insight into, like, how film and narratives and film are are actually physically constructed, or even Harmon's way of storytelling, then we we can interpret it a little more. But for a general viewer, someone who's, like, just liked the show because it was funny and kind of crazy... That episode's completely lost on them. It's it's just a Mm. collection of random skits put together. And... We only we only knew that whole circle thing because we're aware of how Harmon literally has constructed his own thing, and we know about things like the hero's journey. Mm. Most viewers don't know about that stuff. They know rough, like they know subconsciously parts and stories when things happen, but generally speaking, they don't know that a story is like a circle or like all that stuff. So it just felt like it was like, hey, this is for all those guys who really. F- know my my way of making and constructing a story. Here's a whole episode dedicated to the way I do that and acknowledging the you know structuralism in embedded in the episode. And 
I don't know. It just to me, it just felt like it was just an excuse just to pat himself on the back. I feel like a lot of these episodes have that. They just feel very like self flattery yeah. almost. I don't think that's going to slow down just because they got what sixty more episodes yeah. greenlit. So I don't think that's going to slow down. So I don't know. And I honestly, I don't even this. know if he really wants to make that show anymore. Like, he almost feels like sometimes, sometimes he feels like he has a short attention span and he just wants to move on to the next thing. He's like, oh, I'm done with this thing. This thing's gotten too popular or too cultish that mm. I'm now just going to fuck with people. Maybe. Yeah, I'm, th- I'm thinking the, the, the reason why he would make it so self-referential these episodes is it's different it's a parody, it felt like his, he felt like it really put he really put his heart into community like it felt like it was something he didn't expect to get nearly as much traction and it often i mean it was always on the cusp of cancellation so the fact that at least for the first three seasons he was really pushing it really felt like he cared about the product he was making and he mm. wanted to tell stories but he also wanted to have that sort of meta commentary which now has become kind of a staple of his creativity like this sort of like analyzing tropes in films having a character that literally thinks he's in a tv show which is you know one of the characters in community thinks he's in a tv show and you know is one of the most loved characters on that show it was it was subtle enough there was enough subtext there and i i i think now it just it's like they you know, there are open times where they just break the fourth wall in Rick and Morty for no reason other than either a punchline to a joke or just... But I feel like they've been breaking the fourth wall since the pilot. Like, I don't... It's obviously more dense than it used to be, but it's not like they're breaking their own... Like, they're breaking rules, but they're breaking rules that have been breaking okay, for well maybe, several years. Maybe I think those jokes are just losing steam, I guess. I think I, yeah. most people most people acknowledge in, in film in general when you break the fourth wall, it has diminishing returns the more you do it. Look at Deadpool and then Deadpool 2. Yeah, well, Deadpool 2 is terribly written. <laughs> don't, don't, okay, don't well, me you know, Deadpool, Deadpool was the first superhero no, not... to actively break the fourth wall and people loved it the first time around, but it got diminishing returns on the second time. So all I'm saying is I think that fourth wall comedy can be funny, but, you know, there is a, there is a line before yeah. it gets too tropey. I guess. I'm just, yeah, I just because I literally made a note of pointing out that particular episode of The Train and being like, oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure Zeke will like it because he'll pick up on a lot of those. And you're right, like, I was losing it laughing um, with all the, the, the Beth and Summer stuff because I know about what that, that technique is and the whole, like, oh, two women have to have a conversation not about a man. Like, those little sort of um, feminist storytelling rules. Mm-hmm. And I was losing a laugh, and just because you're right, I know what they're talking about, and not a yeah. lot of people are. So they're allowed to do it, though. I don't think they're not allowed to. I mean, they're to allowed to do whatever they want, it. Jake. It's their yeah. show. <laughs> I know, but you're the one saying earlier that like they're not allowed to do that. I or that, at, at least in that point I mean, I, in the series. I don't think what I'm saying is I don't. I think it's a step backwards rather than a step forward. Right. They're allowed to do it, but it has to accept the consequences of of the show not nearly being as effective as what it was hmm. originally. Same thing with Community. I mean, after certain people left off the show, it never got back the same steam it had in its earlier seasons. And although it hit it hit personal notes way better, it's it still had diminishing returns on its on its storytelling style simply because people leave shows right. in that situation. But in this situation, I I just think 
you know, you can do so much, and you and we and if anything, BoJack, after all that time, regardless of what you say about the ending, it goes to show that a show that's animated can still be just as effective as a live action show, and mm. tell just as deep a story. So, and there was a period in time where Rick and Morty was trying to tell a deeper narrative, and you'd be, you know, you can't say that wasn't true. I mean. Look at you remember that I mean I remember everyone talking at that season three pilot with Nathan Fillion and and you know coming in for that it still might right? be my favorite episode of the whole show yeah but it's trying to tell a deeper story it's not trying to make fun of a device or anything like that there's definitely well not not as much as some of them yeah, definitely more the the dive not diverse the more dense episodes they have now but what I love about that is just how quickly they wrap certain things and yeah you can't have that episode without everything that led into that mm-hmm. episode but I just I feel like because they've had that 70 episode deal they have the freedom we're like well we can't get cancelled so we're going to take a bunch of detours we wouldn't have otherwise done yeah we don't need to feel the need to progress the story so we don't get cancelled so I feel like that might be where they're coming from as well no that's fair enough I mean mm. I, I look at I look at certain shows you know like they're allowed to like keep to that sort of everything goes kind of back to normal at the end of the episode I mean Archer's been doing it now for 10 seasons. Right. Like, Simpsons for 30. <laughs> so you're allowed to do it, but, you know, if you want to be a... If you want to be a more... Like, it depends what type of show you want to be, right? Do you want to be like a Bojack Horseman trying to actually say something with the time you're given, or do you just want to make people laugh? Because both are fine routes to take, but I feel like you can only pick one at a certain point. What, you mean tell a story and make people laugh? You can't do both. No, I mean, like, like you can either go down the way... I mean, I mean, Bojack still makes you laugh, but it has yeah. a deeper narrative. I don't think Rick and Morty does anymore. We might just have had a jarring cut there, because your mic just stuffed so up. So just stop recording. It's strange. I got sick of talking about Rick and Morty. Yeah, well, about 20 minutes in, we, <laughs> we're done with Rick and Morty. But you didn't watch any other films this week, did you? Or you watched a film? No, I started reading Dirt Music, and the only reason I mention that is, obviously, the film's about to come out here, and I'm just calling it now. I haven't finished the book yet, but I'm going to call it... I don't think it's going to be a good film <laughs> no i'm just saying I, I, the way it's written i don't think it's going to translate very well and i can explain why like when i maybe next week after i finish the book but yeah that's that's pretty much all i watched this week no oh, okay well that's i mean that's fine i mean i i didn't i've like i said as as with our previous discussion i have been continuing community i did watch quite a few things this week unfortunately Quite a few that aren't even worth mentioning, other than I watched Rough Night and Sex Tape. Don't have to talk about those. Those are two separate films, by the way. Uh, they are. <laughs> uh, I also watched the new King Arthur Guy Ritchie film. Uh, oh, yeah. Which, you know, I didn't like it. I don't think his, as I was saying in our group chat, Jake, I don't think his uh, flash cut storytelling that works and things like the gentleman and Lockstock and snatch works nearly as well in a king arthur fantasy mm. uh realm sort of uh narrative well i remember you saying you didn't like you were coming around to it at a certain point there was some good uh, it lot it loses steam faster the first like right. 30 minutes is probably the strongest but by the end you just check out very quickly um i like charlie hunnam in it but I like Charlie Hunnam in pretty much everything. So, right. uh, and Jude Law is pretty good, but it's fine. 
uh, I gave it a passing mark. Uh, I watched a passing a, mark. I did. Got a credit. I watched two documentaries. I watched uh, "They'll Love Me When I'm Dead," which uh, oh, that's um the Orson Welles documentary Orson Welles, yeah. about making the other side of the wind. Oh, that's already trippy enough as it is. <laughs> it's just the other side of the wind on its own. Yeah, which was our episode seven. That's correct. Uh, which uh, yeah, was it? this was is sort of the one. continuation documentary surrounding that. Um, obviously, uh, I did really enjoy that a lot. Um, oh, cool. Nice. Uh, I think I enjoyed it probably more than the actual film, The Other Side of the Wind. I mean, that doesn't surprise me, to be honest. Yeah. But... I mean, yeah. context, context is everything. I mean, that was in our, not that we thought it was a bad film, but I remember that was in our, not Chock Top, what's the other one? The Stale Popcorn Award. Stale Popcorn Award. Made do a, not ever forget it, Jake. Do not ever forget that. <laughs> I remember Because it. it'll be interesting <laughs> to see what gets it this year. I think people are going to hate us. I already know my front runner. <laughs> what, for the winner or the loser? The loser. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. I, I, oh, my God. Um, my voice fingers went... And the other documentary I watched was uh, called Grass is Greener. And Is the grass greener on the other side, Zeke? Uh, depends if you like weed or not. Um, <laughs> nice. Obviously, the documentary was about sort of the origins of marijuana production and selling in African-American populations uh, across America over history, over predominantly the uh, 20th century, and sort of how, like... Um, it's affected different people's lives. It's ruined people's lives in the sense of people went to prison for absurd sentences for very small amounts. Uh, sort of how it, in, it influenced different art forms, particularly music. And sort of how nowadays, now that it's become legalized, uh, how uh, capitalism is sort of overpowering. Well, white capitalists are sort of buying into that market. Um, it's pretty good. It's a very by-the-numbers documentary in terms of conventions. Uh, has a lot of talking heads. Um, What's the B-roll like? Grass? B-roll is predominantly, like, music and stuff like that. I mean, they have people like... Talking heads like, uh... That's impressive. Uh, Snoop Dogg. It actually has a real, uh, interesting... There are, like, points in it that actually cross over with The 13th, which has become quite a popular documentary on Netflix, given current world events. Um, mm. as I talked about, I think maybe not last week, the week before, uh, which is obviously the document uh, documentary discussing the Thirteenth Amendment. Oh, I and, know. I, yeah, I do remember. You talking. Uh, I think that was that train spotting we talked about that. Yeah, and how um that's uh, affected the African American population in terms of the prison system, mm. and there is a very minute uh crossover between both documentaries talking about how uh one of the biggest causes of the mass imprisonment of the African-American population had to do with the possession of marijuana. And they used an example. Uh, a loose story thread throughout the documentary is one man who was arrested for the possession of the equivalent of two uh, sticks of marijuana, and he was imprisoned Lock him up in for 100 years. 14 years oh, he went to prison for. I was joking. Um, yeah. Uh, so not great. Um, so what year did this documentary release? 20, uh, tw- it says 2019, but I was... Oh, okay. I was convinced. I was going to say, because in, in terms of the way weed has been sort of, maybe not distributed, but just the legalities of weed in the US 
have gone through a bit of hoops in the last decade. So I was yeah. wondering when uh, this came and out. And obviously yeah. I wasn't... Um, honestly, the first hour of the documentary, I wasn't hugely uh, engaged. It mm. was definitely the last 20 to 30 minutes that were really good. Um, sort of all builds up. I, I liked the shift. It went from the origins of of marijuana in the US and then sort of how it affected cultural icons i.e. like people like Snoop Dogg and and various rapper artists and stuff and sort of how it influenced the music scene and I wasn't a particularly I wasn't engaged in this because a lot of it I'd heard before what really started to hook me was when they started to talk about how uh well the mass now now the mass production and the switch from uh, this being this demonized drug to now being capitalized on and the fact that they project by 2029 that the marijuana industry in America is going to grow something around $50 billion, whereas mm. currently it's at $3 billion. So it's like to like the so, money oh, is... Don't break our whole system. Yeah. Yep. So um, I was definitely more engaged in the second half over the first half. Okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you've got an extra... Hour and a half, you want to watch a documentary on marijuana? Sure. Go, sure. Go. <laughs> and then, yeah, the other film I watched this week was Moonlight. Yes, you want, you because it's on Netflix now. Yeah, yeah, oh, it yeah. just got released on Netflix and it's definitely been a film I think that's uh, come up on a lot of people's letterboxes recently. Um, I noticed if, well, we have mutual friends. I think they rewatched it though. I don't, I don't yes. think it's the first time. This was my it. first time watching right. it. Um, I was a fan. I wasn't as much a fan of it as things such as other A other A twenty four properties such as right. Florida Project. Oh yeah. Uh or even Last Black Man in San Francisco. I enjoyed more. Mm. But I Those both came out after I think. After mm. Midnight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um I think like Last Black Man in San Francisco was last year, and then yep. the year before I think was Florida Project. Oh yeah, then definitely. Um, it was good. It was good. It was a really nice. It was an interesting. Uh, I mean, I, I I've talked about quite consistently over the course of this show my almost fatigue with coming of age uh, LGBTQ films. They've uh, they've definitely those usually honing on teenage girls or teenage white dudes. So oh, that's true. Yeah, um, this was a really cool. Uh, this was a really fresh take mm. and a different perspective, and I really appreciate that. Um, and yeah, I had, I really liked things like the music. It was absent in a lot of parts, but there were some parts where it like picks up and it has some really good orchestral strings in there. And I don't. Yeah, because I think I watched this back in March. I think we were both. On a high podcast hiatus, we had the pre-records rolling when I watched it. So I'm yes, not, I don't know if I've ever actually talked about Moonlight on the show, and I love the film. And you talked about, I think, off the show with me, like the narrative framing device of the Act One, Act Two, Act Three is huge different chunks in his childhood mm-hmm. and growing up. Um, I didn't remember the music though. Like I'm trying to think. It's like I don't remember how it. Sounds. I love like the framing device too. There's like a lot of things. I like. There are a lot of positives that come out of the film. I just don't think I found it as effective something like Last Black Man in San Francisco okay. or Florida Project. I really enjoyed Florida Project. So, um, But Jesus, A24, killing it. They're pretty good. I don't think I've ever seen a film from A24 that I was like, eh. The closest maybe is Disaster Artist. And even then, that's like, I like the film a lot. It's yeah. just 
Yeah, we talked about that like last week, I think. We did. So there you go. So uh, yeah, that's all I've I've watched this week. There you go. I think uh, that was a good one with Moonlight. It's yeah, yeah, there. Moon Moonlight. Honest, I would recommend. I mean, it's it's mm. now they added some great things last week, like that um, between that Netflix. and that. Yeah, and Boogie Nights is on there now. Ah, oh, very nice. And I definitely yeah. will be visiting. Hopefully, Boogie Nights sometime during the week. We'll so. get to it at the end of the show, but there's some stuff coming to Stan this next week that I was like, "What the hell? Like, this is a weirdly good week for Stan coming up." But we'll get we'll get there. It's a good tease. It's a little tease. I like that. Make it to the end of the show. You just have to sit through our 2001 discussion. <laughs> Unbelievable. Disgusting. Yeah. But anyway, I so as I mentioned earlier, if we're ready to go on the career updates. So again, I wasn't really going to talk about this yet. It's early and obviously I don't know where it's going to go, but because I've watched Jack all this week. Spicy. Spicy bit the ball. I was like, ah, I should probably talk about why I've been busy sort of thing. Um, so I, I gave you a bit of a, a bit of a tease the other night what it was so yes yes <laughs> so basically i've written another short film in the last couple of months and uh today it was actually today that i officially sent it into screen west for funding for elevate funding elevate 10 right uh, i think it's it's just elevate and elevate plus that got going at the moment so i did the the, the regular elevate <laughs> i pulled a face i pulled the face um so basically what this is is like the for the the normal strand, which is one I've gone through, is sort of you know the up and coming filmmaker. The the stuff was very you know appropriate for like our level of like oh well you know maybe recent graduates or people who've, who've done a few films. But uh, one one of the things I was like oh I'm gonna have to wiggle my way out of this one is uh, you can't have had a theatrical released feature under your belt. So I'm gonna have to be like. <clears throat> Technically, you didn't have a theatrical. release. It didn't have a theatrical release. I I think you're right with that one. You had it, a screening. I had a screening that I could probably argue was a private screening. Yeah, that, you could just say you didn't get paid for it. Well, I, uh, that would be a lie. <laughs> I did make a profit off that screening, actually. Just say you didn't make a profit. <laughs> Oh, well, now no. there's audio evidence yeah, now I gotta, you. <laughs> now I've got to hide this podcast in the world. Um, no, but anyway, the, po- the point is um, I wanted to go for that one. So, um, And part of the reason I was keeping it a secret is I frankly didn't know if I was going to make the deadline or if I was going to commit to it. So now that I've done it, they have the email. So it's like, oh, well, now the deadline has been hit. So, so I guess I can... That's very intense. Did you say you're an award-winning, <laughs> award-winning filmmaker? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure it's in there somewhere that we won that award recently. So um, that's pretty cool. Congratulations on submitting something. Thank you. I think that's the first time I've done that. I think so. Well, you've been working closely with... Uh, with uh, uh, with one of our tutors. My boy ex-tutors. Dame. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Ex-tutor. We are, we are alumni now. Um, so you could just say he's your friend instead. <laughs> that's true. That is true. He is a friend before ex-tutor. Yes. Uh, no, so I'm working with Damien for Solo, who of course has done a lot of stuff, and he was our tutor for, I, w- I want to say several years. It's accurate, but that that sounds like he's our tutor for like our entire lives, which is not true. <laughs> Couple of years. Couple of years, exactly. Um, so he submitted a script to Elevate Plus. So we sort of just sat together and worked on each other's scripts and gave each other ideas and stuff. So, um, what time? Pretty exciting. I'm not going to spoil what time we're recording this show, Zeke, because we don't go too. People don't need to know the backstory. No, exactly. You don't want to have too much production context. But I will say, 
at the time of recording, there is three minutes left for all of the materials to be sent through. Oh, okay. So in three when minutes... When do they get back to you? I have no clue, which kind of sucks. Hopefully... Is it like a competition, later. or is it just? A... Um, well, they're only going to select certain amounts because it's it's not necessarily to to get the film up and running. It's more funding. It's just additional funds. So I think for plus, you can ask up to seventy or eighty thousand for a short. But I think they want you to attach materials for a feature. So I didn't. Damo did that, but I didn't do any of that. I just sent in a short script with like the supplementary materials. Uh, and what's cool is that they said that I can do video submissions instead of like. You know, the director's vision, the career elevates, so like all that stuff. So what's the funding potentially going to go up to? Uh, 14 grand for me. Wowzers. So that'd be pretty handy. So we get Inspector Gadget in here. <laughs> um, so if that goes ahead, Zeke, you'll have a job. And I'll have a job. And we won't be bums anymore. I like that. <laughs> well, that's uh, and that's an actual career update there. That's why we have this segment in our show. Segment. We get to use it every once in a while. We do get to use it every <laughs> once in a while. Um, um Although I will say, um, X Rental did not win any awards at the Static Film Festival. That's okay though. So, um, you won something. Yeah, I won. I won a big heart. You won. Oh, you're talking about Cradle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's it, true. No. 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 You could say you had two submissions in that festival. That's true. That's true. No, I'm glad. I, I I will say, I was a little surprised by the doco they picked. I think the drama they picked was a good choice, and the comedy. I think those were good choices. Um, but having said that, I could probably name like four or five other docos that were equally deserving of of the top award. So I'm not. That's okay. I'm not fussed or upset. Well, yeah, it's time for us to move Ooh. into our film of the week. It's time. It's the next installment in the Cinema Sideshow Countdown Through the Decades retrospective. Ooh. We now moved into the 1960s. But Jake, what are we watching? Well, ironically, we're in the 60s, but we are watching 2001, A Space Odyssey. Dave, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. The Discovery One and its revolutionary supercomputer seek a mysterious monolith that first appeared at the dawn of man. This film was directed by Stanley Kubrick and came out in Australia on the 2nd of May, 1968. That's cool. We got it it on time. The Sting took, what, nine years to get over here? (laughs) What is that? That is weird. (laughs) Um, right, so Zeke, this is a film that neither of us have seen until the last, what would you say? I would say week, but I watched it last night. I also watched it last night. Oh, well, there you go. (laughs) So we're a day into this film that, frankly, we probably should have watched decades ago. Yeah. Um. Even though we've only been around for two decades. Yeah, I know. I should have watched this movie when I was free. Well, it's rated G. It's got a G rating, so. Should it have a G rating? I don't think it should have a G rating. No one swears. PG. I'd give it PG. How's like, hey, screw you, man. It's the start swearing. Well, a dude dies in it. And an ape kills another ape. That's true. It should be PG, I guess. I, I guess it's the 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 <laughs> It's got some real creepiness in it too. Yeah, I guess. But even like G rated films. I like have how like, we're arguing. Oh, the, like the, how the rating. <laughs> Kubrick would want to bash our heads in with a with a bone. <laughs> well, 
This film is uh, awesome, as a surprise to no one. <laughs> <laughs> this film won convincingly in the poll. Yeah, um, I don't have the score on me. I've got next week's score, but... Um, it was a real dominant was, performance. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's not, that's not a surprise. No. Well, it's, it's funny, because I'm actually going to mention Night of the Living Dead in a minute, which, of course, was the other film, also 1968, um, that lost the poll, but... Um, I'm obviously very glad we're talking about this film because having watched it last night, this is one of those films where I, I've, between the two of us, we've watched a lot of films now. I think, yes. And we've gotten through our blacklist pretty pretty well, I think, as of late. Mm-hmm. But it's been a long time since I've watched a film like this and just thought, man, I was missing out. I cannot believe I was... And I, I know a lot of the acrophonography. I know a lot of specific scenes and I'll talk about that in my highlight scene specifically. But just sitting down and watching the film, like from start to finish, two and a half hours, um, felt like 50 minutes, like it just flies by, but I, man, I was just so blown away by how well it holds up. This film looks like it could have been shot 40 years later than it was. It looks perfect. I'm really, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's, I actually was lucky enough to see the exhibit for this yes, you did. Uh, film at the Museum of Moving Image with uh, my partner, Sarah, mm. and uh, she she told me to bring this up on the podcast yeah. too, so <laughs> here we are. Um, no, fair, well, even in my research, uh, that museum in particular came up a lot of times. I was yeah, like, well, um, and obviously it was really amazing to see uh, some of the props from the film just... What was right. what were the props you saw? Uh, I saw the red helmet that Dave wears. Oh, that's awesome! Uh, I saw one of the ape masks. Uh, the ape mask, like one of the the masks for the apes. At the yeah, start yeah. Of the I want to talk about those apes as well. Um, uh, and there were a couple of other. I've got like things like letters from Arthur C. Clarke to Stanley Kubrick. Oh, that would be awesome. Um, who were the co-writers on yep. this film? Uh, I'm just looking through them right now. Uh, I've What's got the, the there? clapperboard for oh, that's sweet. Stanley Kubrick six, six, nine. and his uh, Panasonic look finder. Uh, if uh, our audience wanted to see the photos you took, oh my God, that's awesome. He's showing me photos, everyone. Screw yeah. you all. No, if our audience wanted to see the photos, where could they go, Zeke? Did you upload them on Instagram? I did, I think, I'm sure actually. you did. At least one or two of them. I was pretty jello when I saw those. Uh, ZKMH on Instagram, same as my letterbox. Yeah, you might have sent me them, though. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I put up a couple. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. So there's a few up there. I swear you had the script as well. There was like a script page of notes. Maybe. Or or was that the writing? uh, I think it was a letter. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, it was a letter between Stanley Kubrick to Film Journey Beyond. Yeah, so it was a letter... From Arthur C. Clarke to Stanley gotcha. Kubrick, so there was a, it was That's an amazing awesome. exhibit. Uh, they really delved into a lot of the production context, the like the way that uh, various uh, the soundtrack was composed, uh, how mm. they designed some of the most jaw dropping sets. Like, yeah, just the I th- yeah. Sorry, go on. I think this film is it literally is the definition of a timeless masterpiece completely because i was blown away i watched it last night on it's actually available on italy's netflix (laughs) um via nordvpn 
right. sponsored by NordVPN. Uh, the only uh, one here is Foxtel Now. If you wanted to stream it in Australia, it's the only way you can. But do if it you here. had a, VM, a, v, a VPN provider, Italy's uh, Netflix has it. I was at JB before I came here, and the 4K DVD was there. God, this in 4K. I know, right? Insane. I just, to me, it's it's just amazing. It really goes to show, and I can see so much influence this film had on just science sci-fi like not mm. a week or two ago i watched sunshine for the first time and really enjoyed that and even just the way that the spacesuits are designed in sunshine you can definitely see boyle must have drawn some inspiration from mm. the space stu- the spacesuit design in in 2001 mm. the, the weird sort of triangular helmet that's sort of like yeah, pointy. kind of that weird angle, and it's our thumbnail. So if you're watching your phone, you can look at the thumbnail. The helmet should be in view, and you're uh, right, it has like a weird pointy end to it. Yeah, it? um, and there's definitely sort of influence there. But it's, I think, what I really like about this film is the depth of universe building, mm. and I think this film <laughs> literally, <laughs> yeah. yeah, literally, um, it's sort of um. And I know this is why Interstellar's also drawn a lot of comparisons and parallels. Oh my to god! It. Yeah, of course. Because um, Nolan's really good at it too, but Kubrick just has this way of building, at least in this film. And I, I, I sadly haven't caught nearly as much as I should from him. But this film is is mostly feels like an exploration of the future, or at least how they mm. thought the future would go. And not sort of in the hokey fun way, not bad, but hokey fun way that Back to the Future takes it on. Right, um, yeah, they have fun with it. They have way more fun with it, whereas this feels like they were trying to express what they thought the future would be in 1968. Mm. I mean, a bit of production context, the man had only just been put on the moon or was about to be put It was, on the moon. yeah, this movie released before we had landed on the moon. Yeah, that less, is insane. Less uh, just uh, just uh, under a year before yeah. I think. So uh, obviously at that point, going to the moon was very much on the cards. So this feels like the vision, but it's it's not just that. It's the it's the scientific soundness, the real effort that they put in to make, uh, you know, the idea of the the rotating sphere mm. that. that like to ground sort of the the air pressure and uh like to make the it's that whole centrifugal force thing there's science in it i don't know <laughs> the, the specifics of it but i know that science. a big focus of this film was really trying to ground realism yeah i think and this ties back to what i was going to mention earlier when in terms of sci-fi scientific realism. right yeah where kubrick i was watching some of the bonus features on the blu-ray that i own and they were talking about how kubrick would look at sort of monster films or sci-fi films and up until that point it was a lot of sort of b-grade horror stuff you didn't really get a sci-fi film that took itself very seriously Mm -hmm. prior to this and again night of the living dead came out the same year and it's like yeah it was the birth of zombies but that it's it's not you go back to it you have to accept the time that it was in where it's like well they didn't know what zombies were and Mm -hmm. Um, the acting's like you know there's just things that are off you have to embrace its campiness if you will this is the exact opposite of that. This is a film that was like, we're going to do sci-fi right. And Kubrick, who was like, those other films are trash. Mm. And he was very vocal about shitting on those films. Uh, but 
he obviously knew what he wanted to do was to take the sci-fi genre very seriously. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is it. Almost like it almost feels like it's the challenge of 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 even the term science fiction, because he really wanted to take a stance. There was a lot of correspondence he had with NASA about yeah. making this film realistic, and it's a similar similar thing that Jonathan Nolan did with uh, Interstellar. Interstellar. Mm. Um, there's definitely a grounded uh, a realism and belief, and I think it's what helps with its timelessness because, you know, less than 10 years after this, you had a film like Star Wars or a film mm. like Alien, which, you know, definitely are sci-fi, uh, sci-fi fiction definitely went more the fantasy route rather mm. than the realism route. And there is a... But, I mean, after a film like this comes out, do you really want to try and up... Like, you want to try and beat a space odyssey at scientific realism yeah, like <laughs> it's virtually impossible and like i remember even i've seen footage of george lucas talk about 2001 and he says he's like it's untouchable yeah he's like i want to do something 10 percent that good yeah i mean like it's just everything about it like from the the world building to the even the idea that pan am is which obviously oh, yeah. that hasn't aged well <laughs> in the sense of what happened to pan am but Obviously, in in the context of the time, it's like talking about how, I mean, it's weird that less than a week ago SpaceX launched. I mean, let's right, yeah. let's put that in perspective. I know everything else in the world has sort of overshadowed it, but SpaceX launched. Like, let, you know, less I didn't even a, know that to be honest. <laughs> and I wouldn't blame you. Yeah. I had to be told by Oliver on Friday. He's like, "Oh, you remember the space the SpaceX launched this week?" And I'm like did it <laughs> um yeah but it's sort of like how corporate you know corporations are eventually going to control the sky but uh if anything it's showing um if from the very start of this film it's just a showcase for man's interaction with technology and almost the lack of comprehension we have with it or its power or of its or of its full reach yeah and i think i think to tell end all of those points is it's about our simply lack of knowledge on it and our curiosity about it and i think ev- evolution is to- totally the word for this whole thing both both physically in terms mm. of the apes turning into humans but the evolution of the technology around us and the evolution of the tools we can mm. use to to create but or to, yeah to create the world around us that we live in and i think i think the only way to talk about this film and you tell me if you think this is how we should approach it Usually we talk about the film, go on spoilers, go on highlights. So I think we need to break it down into the four acts. This is clearly a four-act film. Yeah, look, honestly... Just go from there. It's a, a film that I think any cinephile needs to watch, no matter what. I don't think there's going to be a lot of spoiler-free talk with this film because it requires <laughs> a thorough deconstruction systematically as the only way to really digest and review it. Um, so... If you're a cinephile and you haven't watched this film, like we hadn't up until this point, <laughs> please go watch this film. It is a audio-visual experience. Mm. Um, it truly is a masterpiece in the in the form of the word. And I don't use that word lightly. I've I've used it recently for portrait and maybe her, maybe. Mm. But uh, it's this is just this one of those kind of films. Where, and I'm going to say it's not even my favorite Kubrick film. I still think Clockwork Orange. I enjoy that film more. Really goes to show his. Oh my god! Yeah, his capabilities though. It's, it's crazy, but this is and this again to your point. This is the earliest Kubrick film I've seen, 
I haven't seen Spartacus or Doctor Strange Love or any of those. I've seen obviously The Shining and Clockwork Orange and Eyes Wide Shut. And so is this Full your this is your earliest? Because Strange Love would be my earliest. Okay, yeah, this is my earliest at sixty eight for sure. Because I've only seen Strange Love, this and Shining. Right. The three I've seen from him. Uh, so I'm going backwards, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Slowly going backwards on his career. Yeah. Um, but it is shocking because this just feels like the one that is obviously the most uh, spectacle. Like, it felt like, I, you know, all the other films I've seen of Kubrick's, I get why they're so well done and everything, but uh, compared to this, it's like, those aren't epics. That's not him trying to be big. This is him clearly trying to be big and thinking thematically and literally on such a bigger scale for what, mm-hmm. what we're seeing. So, with that, I think let's start with Act 1 of the story, which mm. is clearly the, the Dawn of Man and the Apes, which, obviously, I knew about the, the graphic match and which probably the most graf- famous graphic match of all time and all these scenes. I didn't realize that it was a whole 20-minute chunk of the film, which was a nice it's, surprise. It really, it's um quite fascinating when you, mm. th- like, think about it because this, this film as a whole is almost a silent film in a lot of yeah. ways. It's not dialogue-driven at all, really, with the <laughs> exception of... Probably, <Ape> noises. <laughs> especially the first 20 minutes, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, it's literally just ape versus nature, basically, mm. you know, when the the evolution of the tool, basically. That's oh, the, it's, so, it's just so um, shot as well. Oh, like that, that, like that even, sequence? Where, yeah, like slow-moing, especially when, like, the apes smacking against the other bones and he's sort of learning you're right learning how to use it as a tool mm. and as a weapon and, I, th- yeah. I I think it's um, and obviously they discover the monolith the apes do mm. and they uh, react to it with sort of praise and reverence and this tribe of apes that are like showing pure like like almost worship to this this, this monolith um not a scene later are rewarded with this idea of, you know, one of them playing with, with bones and discovers the mm. use of a tool. Yeah. And I mean, this tribe of apes successfully scares off another tribe of apes. So it shows that sort of power of tech, what technology can do um, and the power by wielding it, what it gives that tribe because, and I think that's what I interpreted from the first 20 right, minutes. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, the I mean, introduction to th- that concept, which is obviously explored throughout the film, because it's like we don't get the scene where the human creates Howl and Howl's, um, you know, it's like we don't see like the human mm. regrets creating Owl, uh, Howl, I should say. Um, we see the aftermath of that though, and this scene with the apes is very much the the introduction of that, of learning how to use the things around them as tools. And... But I think it's good to th- that it is definitely like they want to distinguish that there are other tribes of apes and there's that. Yeah. That, that tribal instinct is already there. It's already present. Yeah. Which the is then reflected in the latter parts with things like nationalism and, and how the Americans discover the monolith on the, on the moon and lie to other countries. And that's, <laughs> that's shown with the, uh, the gentleman. I'm not sure what his name is. The one right. we follow in the, the second act and his interaction with the Italian and, uh, the German yeah, yeah. scientist. Don't ask me too many questions about Act Two. <laughs> we'll get we'll get to why in a second, yes. I guess. Um, no, but you're right. It's cool to see the juxtaposition and the fact that this first act exists and it is as prominent as it is in the film. You're always thinking about it. 
You're always I mean, watching the, the film establishment is technology is power. Yeah. And we get to see it even from the simplest thing of a ape picking up a bone and using it as a club. When you think about that, that's that's what the dawn of man technically is. <laughs> it's, no, uh, that's exactly it's right. It's the power technology has on on our like on our culture and how we use it to act out against other people and gain power and a foothold. So yeah, I will say about that first act before we move on as well is, so you talked about how finding the ape mask. Um, yes, it's a museum. Yes, yeah? Uh, yeah, it was exhibit like exhibit. It, okay, it wasn't it wasn't a permanent fixture. It's just a right. It was like one of the you know how they do like the guest exhibits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Museums. Yeah. yeah. Right. No, I just want to get the um the verbiage correct or the, the terminology, but. It's interesting. You, s- I'm glad you said that to me now because I would have been really confused yesterday. Because I was, I'm gonna be that guy. I didn't realize that those were mimes in costume. What? <laughs> I thought they were genuine apes. I was like, oh wow, Kubrick's good at directing animals. No way. No, I, I'm a sucker. I don't know. I generally, I, I was thinking that the whole time. I was like, wow, they're actually. They were better than like the Planet of the Ape, uh, which masks. the same year. Same year as Planet Yeah, Apes. but they're both obviously going for a different sort of... Uh, yeah, humanoid talking faces versus clearly lit- trying to replicate reality here. Yeah. But I was fooled. Because, again, here's the thing. If it was at the end of the film, I wouldn't have been as fooled, I don't think, because I was going into the film being, oh, well, it was made in 1968. So, and again, same year as Planet of the Apes, mm. where my assumption of the makeup in those films is just the limitations... And not having a desire to make them realistic, okay. but I didn't realize that if they wanted to make those apes realistic looking, they I guess they could because it fooled me. But here's the thing: throughout the whole film, you realize that every shot just holds up. Everything looks great. Yeah, I'm I'm particularly blown away by definitely acts the act two and act three. Right, the, like the design of both the any of the major spaceships is just blows my mind it just actually yeah. blows my mind like, well even you make compared it to star wars earlier nearly a 10 year difference and it's like again you're right star wars is different it's more fantasy and more high action but it doesn't look anything like this yeah i definitely think that is that comes back to uh allocating the budget in different areas obviously right. um this film probably had a much bigger budget than star wars at the time yeah but also it's things like when you think about what they do, what he does in the space, it's way less action heavy. It's way more yeah. spectacle. And that's why I would definitely attribute this film to being a audio visual experience and not like, Oh, it's a movie. So of course it's an audio visual experience. When I say experience, I mean like your eyes are treated to this spectacle and your ears yeah. are treated to this soundscape. You can't, you can't replicate unless it's real life. Like that's yeah, the that's it's how hypnotic. it is so hypnotic. It's baffling. It's like you just get, you really do think it's real. Like at points you're like because everything that happens in it, none of it's like epic in the sense of cinematically epic, like story driven. Like they're not going mm-hmm. towards a sun and they're about to the the ship's about to blow up. No, like yeah. the height of drama, like with the exception of the fourth act is, you know, like what happens in the third act. The whole second act is just a guy going to the moon and his experience <laughs> in going to the moon. The whole first act is just a bunch of apes being apes, discovering 
well, they're the, the obviously the primitive of man. Together strong. <laughs> yeah, discovering you know, discovering tools, and it's like, but they're all they're all every part of this film needs to be there, and every mm. part of it is is a spectacle one way or another. I mean, you watch all I did when I was watching those apes is man, those must have inspired the crap out of Andy Circus. Oh right? my god, yeah. Well, that's again another <laughs> thing is in terms of the physical movement. I didn't think I was like, well, they didn't have an Andy Circus in the sixties. No. It's like no, they just used mimes. That's what mimes are. <laughs> they just go to a zoo and study gorillas yeah. and apes, and they they like it. Just you know that inspired anti circus. No, I'm, if it I'm didn't, sure it I'd absolutely did. Blown away. But again, it just goes back. You're right. The timelessness in this film, where it's like I just yeah. didn't think it was possible to do this in 1968. And Kubrick's like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, th- this film's yeah. fascinating because it's not actually that. Con- it has a lot of background content a lot of the people that worked on this film were film students or film okay. graduates i didn't know that because no one wanted to pick up this film because it's <laughs> when you think about it and you read it on paper it's kind of an unethical mess it doesn't make a lot of it doesn't print money on it's, on yeah. on paper there's not there's like you said we're breaking it down into four parts there's not really there is an obviously an overarching like narrative, but it's not on the surface. You've got to go searching for mm. it. At the end of the day, it abstract, it's yeah. four. It's abstract, and it's four different films really put mm. together that loosely, you know, loosely. Uh, the monolith is the only real connective tissue between all four. Yeah, yeah. and may and two and three are at least a little bit more. Uh, they're they're a bit more linear, well, and f- obviously three and four are like direct. Yeah, like sequels if you will <laughs> so what yeah. the first one is probably the one that's the most abstract out of all four of them in terms of it's the only one that's not mm. directly correlative to the story in a way i mean you know the word odyssey is literally in its name i think in terms of the story mm. it's yeah you know it's not as relevant to tell the plot that occurs but in terms of reminding the audience where man started and telling you thematically this is what we're trying to say mm. you're right it's definitely important i don't i think i think the fourth act is probably the most abstract or the most like yeah fro- frozen but, it, but loop, it's also sure. the most uh direct follow-up like the, yeah like it, it has the character it literally from has the, the previous same act. Yeah, yeah which is the yeah. only yeah one that has a joining character whereas the other ones like you have an ape in the first one, one man in the other one, and then another man in... Yeah. in well, even how he's only in the first... I was shocked that he was only in mm. a little portion of this film. And yeah. I love that. I was like, well, that's ballsy because it's such a good villain. But um, but is he a villain? That's the, that's the real question. Yeah, he's a dick. <laughs> okay. Um, you don't think how's a dick? N- well, we can get to the third part. We, yeah, so. okay. Uh, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, obviously that's what happens really in the, the first part of the film. Mm. Second part of the film follows uh, this guy who I believe is, well, he's the head of the Earth part of NASA, I think it is, or at least like the American representation right. of space travel, and he's going to because uh, they've discovered the yeah. mono, uh, the monolith on the moon. So this would this would be the year nineteen ninety nine or two thousand because it's eighteen months prior to the main. Yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I, mean, I never, still... I never thought about the, the time, but I guess you're right, technically right. correct. It's just because the name of the film is 2001, so it's always on my head. What time? Well, I mean, the time is so relevant to me with like it being made in 68, and 
it being the future. And you're right, we hadn't landed on the moon yet. We hadn't had FaceTime, <laughs> which we see in, in the second act of this film. Oh, wow, yeah. Like, that wasn't even a Baffling. dream at that point. Well, actually, that, that's not true. Apparently, there was, like, stuff in the 40s they were working on it. But then they dropped it mm. until, like, today, basically. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, you got to... It, it really... And obviously, the second part is just this exploration of this Pan Am space airport mm. and station. Um, and sort of... We, we, we discover that they've, they've apparently... There's been this epidemic... Uh, yeah, I picked up and I was like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. That has led to the evacuation of a lot of people, but it's what it is, is it's a cover up to what actually is happening, which mm. is uh, the Americans have found this monolith on uh, which predates anything they've ever found on the moon. And obviously it's this big cover up story. And, and really the, the key part of this uh part of the story is really to showcase what man has become Mm. with the tools that they've been given well it's it's definitely the biggest leap technologically between each act yeah easily the biggest leap i mean really it's just to showcase i mean obviously by like they you know they everyone talks about it's one of the most iconic match cuts in history with the bone going up absolutely yeah jumping into the space station and um basically it's just a real dis- a good way of distinguishing how man who discovered tools millions of years ago has now arrived at the point in history that it's at. Mm. Um, and if anything, yeah, the, the second the second act's so important because it helps flesh out the world the best, I think. It, I mean, it, it shows us how do people eat food on these. Like, it does... Every, it answers yeah. every small <laughs> question you may have ever had. I'm so glad you brought the food because I completely forgot to, to write a note about this, but... Why is every futuristic depiction of food so plain and boring? Have we not learnt yet? I'm inclined humans... to just. I'm inclined to agree with that, though. We've gotten to the point where everything has to. Everything that's futuristic is clean. Exactly. So why not food? Humans want to make things beautiful. So no, Fuck you, Kubrick. <laughs> no, I disagree. <laughs> I'm I kidding. think I'm no, kidding. but like even now with astronauts, they eat food out of straws and stuff. I guess it's accurate, but like I don't know. Because I see it all I, the time. I agree with that. Like, uh, it's going to get to a point where I reckon things will just all be in straws. Well, probably not now because it's not good for the environment. But the idea... Of, um, <laughs> no. But, like, true, like the idea of these little white boxes that have just nothing. That's, like, literally what Apple was founded on. Look at Apple's Mac designs. And how yeah, clean. but at least it's like... Yeah. Hmm. Okay. It's so sterile. It's just it's a boring... It's the the tray that she delivered is a boring tray. I'm just saying, mate, <laughs> mate. If the world has its way, we're all just going to be binary numbers by the end of this uh, decade. To be fair, we we should be allowed to use straws if we're in space. We can just throw them out the window. Surely we can't pollute space that much. Didn't Wally talk about that with like uh, the atmosphere being really enough. polluted? <laughs> yeah, but that's just one atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even Wally. Look at how Wally does it. Everyone consumes things through straws, and Wally. I would love to rewatch Wally now, having seen this yeah. film. That There's probably a lot of uh, inspiration from yeah. this film, and it's basically a silent film as well for the first half of it. Yeah, uh, and I mean that's what really the second act is. It's just to explore sort of what man has done with tools, yeah, and where they are now, and and it reveals obviously the monolith, and unlike the apes who approached it with sort of a reverence and a and a worship, man now is just taking their photo in front of it. 
they're bragging mm. about discovery and the monolith or well reacts with this high-pitched sort of drone which i f- is interesting that they yeah. um well it's a different reaction than what the apes had with the apes in go crazy over like a sound plane no well the apes a... sort of worshipped its I feel like that's sort of the difference is how both yeah well, how they react to it well they sure. well, one reacts with sort of a boasting arrogance and then the other acts with reverence it's mm. sort of the the contrast that's true um I like that I like that oh, thank you um and obviously it's there's not as much to say about the second act in terms of apart from it really showcases this in awe of production design mm. Um, and set dressing. Oh yeah, it's and... brilliant set stuff. I will say with the second act, it was probably it was probably my least favorite act to be honest. It's not hard to be least. I can yeah, but, but it's also the one that it helps like... build the third act. I think especially it, it helps does... bridge. It's meant to bridge. Yeah, it does a bridge nicely, and I, I like they didn't feel the need to. As someone from 1968 watching this film, there's no version of this film that takes place in the now. It's always well beyond what you had lived through and then well past what you would ever be able to live to uh, in terms of an audience member who would watch at the time it came out. Uh, but that having that said, I wasn't really a big fan of the second act and I get it's essential. I get that we need the monolith being discovered on the moon and you're right, it's a bridge because it would have been a little too much of a jump to jump straight into the house mm-hmm. stuff. But I just, I didn't like the way it was shot. I didn't like the way it was paced. It was the only time in the film I was like, oh, where, where are we at? Like, I would check the time code, like, oh, hang on. Only time. And I think that's to do with the weird editing choices where they would cut in and out of conversations. I just found it really boring, it, like, mm. the way it was shot, compared to everything else, which is so good. Yeah, this 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 film, particularly in the second act, is predominantly shot in wides, a lot yeah. of wides. And I know it's trying to really be like, get a grasp of, this whole set, these rooms, mm. everything. Um, and it's shot anywhere between wides and mids. There's not a lot of close-ups. Yeah, you don't get like um, a weird close-up angle and this and that. Close-ups yeah. are prominently kept to the third act and the fourth act in particular. Particularly the third act is a lot of close-ups in the third Pretty act. Pretty much just Howe and Dave. Yeah, when like things are happening around them. Yeah. And we just punch him real close. Um, but... Yeah, there's a lot of wides in this, and there's a lot of uh, exposition. There's a lot, there's a lot of, of exposition, that's correct. And, yeah. I mean, that was always going... And this sort of comes back to uh, what I was saying, that not a lot of studios were... I know MGM ended up taking it on board, which is one right. of the big five at the time. Um, Couldn't say no to Kubrick, <laughs> I suppose. No, and obviously he had, you know, he already had a couple of uh, big pluses behind mm. him, and but he still did take on a lot of... St- uh, a lot of students for this film, I believe. A lot of young, young minds. Not a lot of uh, uh, experience, and there was a lot of ambition with this sort of set. I think he wanted to have a fresh set of eyes, and I think having younger people work with him really helps for this film because of obviously it's futuristic undertones. Yeah. Whereas if you take something like Strange Love, which is very much commenting on sort of, you know context at the time mm. and it just so happens that strange love has aged really well with its political mm. satire but i own it i gotta watch it though but yeah yeah but with this film obviously yeah he had a very 
specific vision he wanted to encapsulate, and I think that's why he brought a lot of young a lot of young people on for the production design in particular. That makes yeah, it makes a lot of sense, especially because students, especially then, would probably be so used to experimentation. They wouldn't have gone yeah. into the scene and done all the generic crap this, you would have this, to. This was experimental. <laughs> just, just a little bit. <laughs> this is, and uh, honestly, with something this ambitious and this experimental, having younger, more ambitious minds is, is definitely more hungry minds, I guess, yeah. who are less set in their ways at the time is probably the way to go. Right. And that's all probably right. why it panned out so well. But yeah. Would you say this bridges into Act Three of the film? Absolutely, probably the most famous, I guess, famous act. Would you say? Would you say the opening or the house stuff is like more visually? Probably. I mean, this has got the most talking. Like this, no, out of true. all three, this is out of all four. This is the most dialogue heavy, I think, or at least maybe not dialogue heavy, but the most plot driven. Yeah, dialogue. there's a, there's like an actual plot here, and there is there is an axe. There's one. There's a plot in the second act, but you're right. It's it's kind of straightforward. Guys going to the moon. Here's some exposition. This one's like here's a there's a plot with a revenge story and there's twist, in a way with the how mm. and all that. See, I yeah, I suppose so. I'm just thinking of the iconography of the film because it's like oh well, the iconography of I would say the iconography. This is the most mm. iconograph because the, I think the thing with the the one that the ape uh, introduction is predominantly condensed down to the last five minutes with the mu- and it's more the music that makes yeah, that scene. Yeah, it's true. It's not Rather- the actual visuals so much as what they do with the edit and the music. Yeah, I think the music's what gives, like, I mean, that's the first time we hear that score. And we yeah. do hear it a few times, but that's the first time we hear it, and it's it's so well-timed is, with it. Is it the same or a different score from the very opening with the, the sun and the moon? When I it, think there were eclipse. slight variations. Yeah, I think there's variations. Um... Because I found yeah. it on Spotify, and there's different versions of yeah. the same track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you'll find that with a lot of films. They like mot- mm. like we talked about it with the Sting last week. How there's yeah, they're all yeah, variations yeah. of sort of the same, same composition. Tune. Yeah, composition. Da, 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 da. Yeah, I like, um, I like the Sting soundtrack. <laughs> but yeah, no, this is definitely the most plot driven. Obviously, it centers around two uh, astronauts and a supercomputer, mm. and they're they're mission to jupiter in which they don't really know why they've been sent that way at the time right, yeah it's sort of a secret mission yeah and they sort of just followed their orders and now they're on they're uh, i think pretty relatively close to jupiter at this point but they're not yeah they're, there doesn't seem to be a big time jump between x3 and 4 it doesn't have on the screen 18 months later like it did prior yeah. so i'm guessing they're close at this point yeah, so, and obviously, they spend probably the first, you know, they establish sort of uh, the main central hub room and then mm. various other rooms over the course of the next. This is probably the largest uh, act out of all of them, right? Like, lengthwise. I think this one goes the longest. Probably, yeah. Uh, this one... Well, pro- this... So, there's, there's an intermission. So, wait, you watch this on Netflix through... Just Netflix. Oh, Netflix Italy. Right, right, right. Okay, so you watched... Did it have the... No intermission, um, no. Had no intermission? No. So when's the intermission? I think it... Oh, you know what? I know I know for a fact. It comes when Howe's rip, uh, lip-reading the two in the pod, and then it cuts to black, or it fades to black, and there's like a three-minute intermission. Yeah, so it's actually in the middle of the third act, That's which weird. is interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, no. I would say this is definitely the longest one. Okay, so... Yeah, um, I find it really interesting that you didn't humanize with Hal 
given how well I'm, I'm kinda lack j- of I'm kind of hum- joking when I okay. call him an arsehole, but <laughs> I mean at the end of the day, obviously this supercomputer comes back to it's basically on the verge of uh, they never use the word uh, the term artificial intelligence mainly because I don't know if artificial intelligence had been coined as a term yet at that point. Like at least, I mean, today we definitely refer to him as like the AI. Yes, but you're right. I don't remember them. I don't saying know if that, that phrase was ever coined until later. Yeah. Like he's pre- a computer in the film. Yeah, he's referred yeah. to as a supercomputer with the most humanistic, uh, the most uh, accurate replicate replication of the human brain. Mm. Basically, saying this dude has a personality, um, <laughs> and he's also literally perfect. Which was funny. That was funny dialogue. I liked that. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but obviously, given what happens to Hal over the course of the time, it's uh, it's kind of interesting because obviously he actually, even though he has a very monotone, computer-like voice, mm. he actually is the only one who exerts personality in, and feelings and emotions, whereas the other human characters are quite... Uh, somber and right. way more robotic. We never really see the humans super happy or scared or any of these emotions. Not really, I don't think. No, no. In fact, uh, uh, they often times where there were scenes where you would think they would emote more. Right. They deliberately don't. Obviously, this is obviously a meant cho- you know meant to be choice. But even you know if you look at the scene with. Uh, one of the one of the scenes I remember talking about a lot in my like high school okay, screen yeah. literature, which is the interaction between Dave and Howe, where he tells him to open the pod bay door. He he doesn't go past like an annoyed voice, like a slight annoyed voice, Dave. Yeah, it's He's it's very... almost like an authoritarian, like a commander telling someone to do his job. Yeah. But you're right; it's, he's never angry, yeah. so to speak. And when you know when uh, uh is it Frank? What's the other? I think the other one's Frank, because I know Dave's our boy. Uh, I have to double check. Double this. check on that, but um, I will say yeah, to Frank. You, yeah, okay, Frank. Frank. Yeah. When Frank is is killed, R.I.P. The the reaction by Dave is not he, sadness, yeah. or it's just like okay. <laughs> it's sort of you're right. I mean, it is sort of robotic in the way he's like, well, this is my next task. I'm gonna chase after him now. And I will say about that scene in particular when. He's driving. I mean, this goes back into the sort of the methodical pace and the. It is such a mind trip. This film. And I mean, I'm pretty sure that's literally the tagline. It's like, yeah, it the, is. the ultimate trip. The yeah. ultimate trip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, it's such a uh, psychedelic film because of how long that scene takes. I want to compare it to two other very similar scenes in other space films I've seen. So obviously, one of them is Interstellar mm-hmm. when, uh, uh, what's his name? I forget the character's name. Not Murphy. Murphy's the daughter. Oh, um... What's his bloody name? Well, it's Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey, yeah. Let's stick with that. Um, When he has to chase after that that gridlock and he has to sort of match its speed to grab onto it. So that's a similar scene. Like, someone in space trying to chase after another thing. And what do they do? They play this massive Hans Zimmer score under it to Mm -hmm. keep it really exciting. And then you watch Apollo 11, the documentary, about the real-life moon landing and real-life footage of them landing on the moon. And there's this dramatic music playing under it. Mm-hmm. And when this scene decides to take five, ten minutes to show our hero rescue someone in space, 
there's not a fucking sound. I think he's breathing in that scene. It's just breathing. It's all, it's it's all diegetic sounds. Yeah. Yeah. Which in space is very few of anyway. Yeah. (laughs) And I've, the only thing, it's so weird that I watched Sunshine not too long ago. Right. Because Sunshine has similar moments of just, they just want to emphasize breathing. And, right, yeah. And um, so I definitely think Danny Boyle drew a lot from from 2001. Um, no confirmation. I haven't watched any of the behind the scenes for it. But maybe that's why I enjoyed both way more. Gravity does yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Gra- pretty well sometimes. Good. But here's the thing. When I think of Interstellar and Gravity and, and these other films, I'm like, I just remember being like a little disappointed. It's like, I feel like they almost got the space silence correct, mm. but... There's something about it. Like, there is effectiveness like... in Interstellar, like that bit when Matt Damon tries to dock and it fails and it just... And yeah, that's It goes from a loud moment. noise to nothing. Yeah. And ironically, one of my favourite instances of Star Wars is playing with this notion of sound Ooh. is your favourite scene in the entire franchise. No. <laughs> no, but when... Yeah, you're right. No, it is a really effective... Uh, that The way the re- sound cuts in I mean, Ryan I remember, Johnson's masterpiece. I remember talking... <laughs> No, because we talked about it. I said it was a really effective scene until you think about it, and then that's... Well, just the practical use of of sound, eliminating sound, bringing it back. I think Ryan Johnson would make a really good sci-fi film, just not a Star Wars film. I mean, Loop is a sci-fi film, I guess. No, but like a space sci-fi Right, okay. Do it, Ryan. Get up up in space. Yeah, do it. I don't think he'll go near space sci-fi ever. I think again. he's gonna do. I think he's gonna do. Ten, yeah, yeah. He's gonna do ten knives out sequels before yeah. he does anything else. But no, I just like we can talk about how amazing the silence is in two thousand one. But I think we, you know, we're lucky enough to do this podcast so far in advance of the film's release. I mean, it came out over fifty years ago now. That we can talk about other. Yeah, it doesn't look like it, does it? <laughs> How? <laughs> How do I make my movie look that good? <laughs> Get a bunch of students, apparently. Uh, I don't know what students they were working I with. I mean, it's like things like this and like... See, you watch this and you watch things like Once Upon a Time in the West and it's like... Once Upon Same a Time... Yeah. Oh, of course it is. God damn. Damn, 68, good and year. And Rosemary's Baby, god damn. Yeah, man. What a year. It's like you watch... You, those films are just timeless. Hmm. The only thing that ages in films like these is it's hard to escape the fashion sense of the time like obviously you got things like their haircuts and stuff which yeah i i would never wear bright red overalls in my costumes sorry and little little jab at jab just want okay. to take that's all right it. that's all right thank you i'm sorry i just thought the idea of day like dave's hair is like you know the full gel crispy it's very it's very right. 60s but it's that might like be a that... nasa thing too do they mm. still do that i don't know it's just a it's a product of the time. I mean that mm. you're never going to change hairstyles. That's just hairstyles. It's why everything that's set in the eighties has to has the most obnoxious hair. <laughs> like this is the eighties, guys. Look at how obnoxious. You, you ever notice that it's things like the things in Stranger Things they make some of the characters have the most obnoxious hair, and then you watch Back to the Future and Marty's just got normal hair. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, what's interesting is that when Back to the Future does the future, twenty fifteen, it, what they re- think hairstyles yeah, are going to be exactly. Uh, it's pretty funny. Hairstyles are funny. It's impossible to predict, really. No, but no. I mean, the fact that the only thing you can point at in this sci-fi space epic that was made fifty years ago and be like, the hair doesn't match up right. The fact that is really the only thing you can point. It at. It doesn't count. I'm just taking the piss. Yeah, away. exactly. It's like 
that is such a monumental achievement. And it's like, this is why people put Kubrick in a high bar. No, we watched The Shining and we were a bit like, you know, it's a good film, but we had questions with the way it ended and mm-hmm. such and such. And, and I realized a lot of my friends prefer the, um, the sequel, not The Shining, but, um, what's it called? The one Dr. That, Sleep. Yeah, Dr. Sleep, which I really didn't like at all. And most of my friends like it more than The Shining. Morty, like, I gotta insane. watch Doctor Sleep, but I just don't get that at all. But the the point is, like, we talk about Kubrick and the Slight, where we get why he's a big, sort of a big director, a big player. But this film is like you can't deny the effect this film had on every director we mentioned today. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to you know where this was an an exploration of of the cosmos and and just the epitome of sort of imagination running wild mm. in that sense and you know you contrast it with something like like i just said with once upon a time in the west which came out the same year like you said and that was an exploration of a period piece but it was a, a different kind of world building that was um insanely amazing and you know they, they both it holds uh, up just as well oh yeah i mean yeah. like and i think that's that's full credit to you know sergio leone and and uh and obviously stanley kubrick mm. so you know and how both of them just uh, for Kubrick though, I, I think it's like Leone had multiple West films, so it's like right. He was used to doing that. so. So, <laughs> and I think Once Upon a Time in the West is the, is the space odyssey of of cowboy westerns, I guess. But <laughs> but at the the same time, Kubrick has such a diverse range of films. He oh my god, really, yeah. You know, we talked about it with Danny Boyle and his director's corner, and I don't think we really at the time of when we did Kubrick's director's corner, we had watched enough Kubrick films. Um, so maybe he'll deserve a revisit some point in the future yeah. with a few more of his films. But to go from things like, you know, like to try different things, you know, like not what, two, three, three years earlier, he's doing the political satire mm. with strange love before that he did Spartacus, which is, you know, about some Roman gladiator dude. Yeah. Kirk Douglas, my boy. Yeah, exactly. And you know, we did Trumbo 12 on the show. <laughs> and 12 years <laughs> after this, you know, he goes and does like a horror slasher film, you know, it's like he really pushed himself in different directions, you know, and, you know, I don't think there are, yeah, I I really do too. I think that that's a full, that's what a, like a real masterclass director does. That's what separates the pack. I think where you're not just a good director in one type of genre, you're willing to take on different things, Mm. you know, it's what separates like the Adam McKay's of the world <laughs> with the Stanley Kubricks, right? Like, well, I was thinking Danny Boyle when you were talking. So like, that's someone who maybe maybe not a streamlined level of quality across every yeah, film he's we, done, but variety. Is at least there. he's trying. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, I could say I've enjoyed way more Scorsese film than Danny Boyle films, but also a lot of Scorsese films are quite the same. Yeah, there's not a lot of like you get your Hugo's and silences every now and then. Yeah, and even then, like they're not all great. Admittedly, no. so yeah, and then it's like you know, it's like things like Francis Ford Coppola, and it's like, let's be honest, the dude peaked in the seventies, <laughs> well, had I mean, a few eighties. I mean, if 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 I had gone out of film career having only made Apocalypse Now and The Godfather, I'd be pretty happy. But like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, he didn't need to do more than that. But I guess you know that might be the difference between someone like Kubrick and Coppola, though. You can point to multiple decades in which Kubrick made a film that was really good. No, you're right. Yeah, you can. It's like, oh well, the '90s, and I'm probably he the, grew, yeah, as a filmmaker, which is the I think the difference. Whereas I do, and I do think 
like people like Danny Boyle are, are actually growing as filmmakers. Mm. We could literally do a, a decade. What 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 are we calling again? I'm forgetting. Decade. A, a, a countdown through the countdown decades. Countdown through the decades. Retrospective. Thank you. Um, we could literally do one of just Kubrick films. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. From 90s to what? At least 50s, maybe 40s. Nah, it would be 50. 50. It would have 50. 50s. Okay. 50s. That makes sense. Yeah. You do half of it. Yeah. You might, I think Fear and Desire might have been 40s. Maybe his daughter did something after, so you could, like, have it in the yeah. family. <laughs> <laughs> well, there actually is a sequel to this film called 2010, which I've heard is not obviously not as good. I'm not sure I want to watch that. And apparently they recast Dave, which you mentioned earlier, recasting someone unnecessarily or yeah. bringing them back. It's like, that's what in my head. I was like, Ugh. I haven't seen 2010. I don't want to. Yeah, I'm not gonna. No, it's sort of like... <laughs> no, it's literally the equivalent of Jaws. I would never watch Jaws 2. Why? No. I got enough. I didn't know Jaws 2 existed until recently. There's up to four... There's four Jaws. Oh, Christ almighty. There's four of them. Please stop. You know, why would you... Why would you ruin a good thing? Exactly. You know? I don't want to... I don't want to... It's the same thing as why I would never... You know, we did Ghostbusters a few weeks ago. I don't think I want to watch Ghostbusters 2. Or the remake. I'll watch the... I'll watch Ghostbusters 2. For sure. Yeah. Because I know they're making a new Gus- Ghostbusters anyway, the, the Afterlife. I'm definitely not watching oh, the, the, 2016, the one. 2016 one. No way. Fair enough. Sort of. It's sort of <laughs> like, uh, you know, there are certain franchises I would... Like, I would watch Ocean's 8. But I, w- I would too, yeah. I really want to watch that. So After the, uh, the Ocean's film. There's, there are... Because there are, the Ocean films that were hit or miss anyway, so... <laughs> depending on which one. <laughs> yeah, well, that second one is something else. Um, before we get into the fourth act, which I think can be exclusively us just talking about our interpretation. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> I've seen this, this scene, the scenes, the compilation of at least the stuff in the house. That That is homaged and, or at least parodied in a lot of movies. You see, I've seen more parodies for the ape stuff and the house stuff than, than the ending. Oh, okay. Which yeah. is, I mean, that's a that's a lot of Simpsons Futurama references to be yeah. fair. But um, I, actually, you know what? I will say the use of the song Daisy, I think, is actually more cleverly used in Futurama than it is in in two thousand one. Take that, Kubrick. Okay. I really love, <laughs> but I love how long his death takes. Yes, and, and you know what? I never got it until I finally watched it last night. I'm like, oh, he's spread out over hard drive. Like that makes sense. Yeah. Because he's a computer. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, that's stupid!" And just like just as the memory is slowly being ejected, <laughs> he's like, "I'm like, I'm losing." Like, hello, a... gentlemen. It it's kind of heartbreaking. Oh, it's hot. and it's yeah. it's cool that it's so. There's no music. It's just it's just it's the just... beating. It's the breathing. It's the. It's everything. Yeah. I think, like, I the Oscar I saw for the exhibit was for visual effects. Oh, I my think. God. I think that's the only one they won, actually, shockingly. Um, but I forgot that you saw an Oscar, the, the Academy Award trophy. It was for... See, because you're just taking it. Yeah, visual effects. How does that work? What do you why, mean? Why didn't it win for production design? That is actually a crime. Ah, uh, what else came out that? Well, we named a bunch of stuff that came out. Yeah, Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh, wow. No, actually. Yeah. <laughs> That's trick, man. Imagine imagine having the production design like this and being like, dude, we got it in the bag. And then Once Upon a Time in the West comes along, yeah, which yeah. surely won it. <laughs> yeah, dude, I want you to check that. That is so interesting. But yeah, I want, I'll want. i talk a bit, a bit more about House Death in my highlight yeah. scene. But not the reason you might be thinking. I've actually got a different reason for why I want to talk about that more. But what I wanted to talk about is the overt use of vibrant reds and whites throughout the whole film. Even the second act has like 
the chairs are red, but the background's white, and of course he's wearing red. How is red, and he walks into the beating heart, if you will. What what was that? Camelot one. Oh, for good for them. Best. Sorry, that's mean. <laughs> it was also the uh, the fortieth Academy Awards that year. Oh, there you go. So nineteen twenty-eight was the first one. Twenty-nine. Oh, yeah. Sorry. You, yeah, the year after. Fair enough. Fair enough. Actually, I think that's when my nan was born. Nineteen twenty-nine. I think that's accurate. For what's this? No, my nan. I think she was born in nineteen twenty nine. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, she's she's passed away now, but that's an interesting fact for you, Zeke. Yeah. Okay. I well, could be, I could do be we really want to discuss that. what we think about this fourth act? Yeah. So uh, it correlates because the the red and white stuff is all over Act Four as well. Um, I think we talk a bit about like, I mean, it's evident with like the reds being, you know, we're in his beating heart and reds like danger which we see plenty of and i love the way the computers are displayed and so because computers didn't exist the way that we're looking at in this film mm. back in 1968 but to take this into that last act where right yeah he arrives at the mon the floating monolith in the fourth act that's yeah that's mm-hmm. after the yeah cool yes um and then we have that trippy scene we sort of traveling that dimension actually you know what that i've also seen that parody a ridiculous number of times so you might be right um all right, well, I'll talk about my sort of interpretation of that ending and specifically the, the meaning of the monolith and how, first off, I, most of the audience is not going to get this joke, but I'm going to make a joke to you, Zeke, that the ending of 2001 A Space Odyssey is the same as the short film Waiting Room that I edited. It's the same movie. Yeah? How so? Because you keep seeing older... Well, yeah, he sees an older version of himself, but, like, Seeing himself in different ages, well, different contexts. I, I do think that <laughs> this might have come first, Jay. <laughs> also, oh, by the way, really? uh, this would have been in the 41st Academy Awards, not the 40th, because of the time it came out. Because it came out in May. And the Academy Awards are in March or April. That's so, pretty late. I guess we had it early this so year. So it would have, it actually okay. would have come in the graveyard of the following year. Because if we got it at the 2nd of May, uh, so it would have missed the window for the previous year, so it would have been the 41st Academy Awards. Big oof, they say. <laughs> um, yeah, to take to talk about this monolith, my interpretation... Again, I, I haven't really read any in, into any of these. I'm sure there's a lot of right and wrong answers. Kubrick has gone on record of being like, yeah, I, I listen to whatever anyone takes. Like He doesn't really have a fixed answer himself, I don't think. Um, I don't think he had one for The Shining either, which is interesting. But I always thought the monolith was not so much a representation of life, but the meaning of life and how people are drawn to it in different ways, that humanity is curious. They're always chasing after Mm -hmm. it. And that's something that we see throughout the film is it being within people's grasp and them not being able to handle what it represents. People, you know, traveling, star-crossed travelers trying to find this thing. And... It's a very abstract ending. Mm-hmm. Sure, seeing himself older, but that that goes back into the repetitious cycle of it, I guess. What's well, the cyclical? Yeah, mm. sort of how uh, the monolith is almost timeless too, and and um, I think the uh, the ending suggests that potentially he might be reborn as a as a child. Yeah, uh, I can see that at the ending. That's a creepy looking baby. Yeah, it almost looks alien, doesn't it? A little it's bit. A... Well, I guess it's embryotic, so that's 
probably what it actually looks like at that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it has... a good way of looking at it, John. Yeah, you never know. I really like the ending. I like it. It's a great ending. Um, I do think my favourite act is definitely the third act, but I think that would be a lot of people's favourite act. You see, I would argue the first one might even be up there for me. Oh, okay. Probably the third is probably my favourite, but like I was blown away by that first act and what... I, I didn't expect, expect to take that much time with the apes. Pleasantly surprised, mm. of course, but... Yeah, so just just for movie. quick mm. clarification, this wasn't the same year as Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh, oh, no. But uh, in terms of Best Art Direction, this did get nominated, but Oliver won for Best oh. Art Direction. Interesting. Uh, this was in the same year as The Planet of the Apes, though. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, And uh, things like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which... That movie. makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I was looking at the because Letterbox you can break it up by year, so I was looking at some of the more popular. I think what's put them in the West is sixty four, not sixty eight. No, it's six nineteen. That's nineteen sixty four. Yeah, look it up. I'm looking. It's totally because that was the oldest film we had done at the time on this on the show. Oh, that means we're going to predate that. Zeke. That means we're going to go into the fifties and forties, and we are just exploring. Um, yeah, well, that's sort of my interpretation of the monolith. And... Oh, no, it is 68. Beg my pardon, Jack. You were correct. Yeah, boy. <laughs> we did it. We did episode 40. So we did. We did. Brained into my brain. So good. Um, yeah, no, this was a, this was what a, a year, year and a half. Yeah, this was a year and a half, I tell you, man. My goodness. Yeah. Another fun fact I'll just quickly mention. I forgot to squeeze in earlier. There was going to be a different opening to the film originally. So, in 1966, uh, Mr. Arthur C. Clarke was sent out on a mission around the world to interview different uh, scientists, high-caliber scientists at the time, and interview them to get them to talk on camera about the possibility of life and extraterrestrial life outside of Earth and in space. And originally, those little intercut interviews were going to open the film. Mm -hmm. I think the film was a little too long. They decided against it. Um, It reminds me of The Disaster Artist yet again, how they opened their film, but... Yeah, it was a cut scene that I found. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So, yeah. I mean, I, I love all the production context and how much they wanted to make this as realistic as possible. Mm-hmm. I think the, uh, like the, there was a whole video on at the exhibit that I saw that talked about the production design behind the rotating uh, right. crucible-like I ship. I still don't know how they shot that. Oh, they, they did. I think it comes back to it might have been because it was actually on a cement mixer but i might be um, they might have done the inception on it but i can't quite remember if it definitely was like it. a literal rotating i was just always like well, how do they get the camera there how are they doing even the stuff with the the pen floating in the second act i was like oh they must have found like an actual zero gravity room and glued the camera to the floor it's like no they just had a glass plane the girl grabs the pen off the glass i was like jesus christ like, it's so inventive what they come up with yeah Pretty amazing, right? Yeah. So, would you like to bridge into highlight scenes? Let's do it, Zeke. What was your highlight scene in 2001 Space Odyssey? I think it is still the scene, and it's the whole sequence in which Dave goes to shut down Hal, Mm. and Hal... That might be mine as well, Zeke. It's just so good. (laughs) It's everything. The colours, the the way that they interact with each other... And well, there's uh, almost no once once he's blasted himself back in, there is no interaction. He never talks back to him. I don't think. No, he just silently. Oh, kills I, him. the one line he says to him is oh to sing encourage Daisy. him to sing. Yep, yep, yep. But yeah, 
it's a uh, at that point is he even how nine thousand anymore? No, he's how one. But I kind of like that scene that Hal goes from <laughs> arrogance. And it, the funny thing with him is because of his monotone, he has no tone differentiation. Mm. But we, because of the what he says, we can almost read into the personality at the moment when he's like, oh, that'll be hard for you to get over here without <laughs> your helmet. You can tell there's like a, there's a cockiness under it. Yeah, there's yeah. a, well, buddy, you're kind of screwed without your helmet. This conversation no <laughs> longer serves purpose. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. And yet, when he obviously Dave dick, gets on the other side, yeah, he starts freaking he's, out. He's a like, bit. "You should take a chill pill, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Please, don't do that." But you're I'm right, afraid. It's, it's like when he's but it's our like association at the end of, with those words, the tactics. Well, yeah, it's uh, we put the emotion into how we mm. can put as much or as little emotion as you want in that scene, and that's what gives it power. Because when he's saying to Dave, "I'm afraid," don't don't do it like and dave's not replying as he's slowly turning off the memory right and he's like i can feel myself slipping away it's like there's still technically no tonal emotion in his voice mm-hmm. but we we give it emotion because we've been told that this thing is like almost human well just the way he's speaking we understand mm-hmm. like he's gone he's gone from cocky here to pleading here, to to passing away here, trying to gain sympathy. Like yeah. we see the steps that he's trying to take, and we and I mean we got to look at that. how much influence something like this would have happened. Like just the effect this film has, this cataclysmic event, this film created for directors of the future. I mean that scene alone, you could compare, you could juxtapose that with the scene with uh, the death of um, uh, Frank. No, the death with, uh, I was going to say, the, the ripple effect this had to things like Blade Runner. And the oh, final yeah, speech great. with... Yeah, with um, um, the replica. I forget his name. I think it's Riker. I want to say it's Riker. I've seen, I saw Blade Runner um, Obviously, the Tears in the Rain scene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where there is next to no emotion in his voice, but you feel it because of everything around it mm. and what he's saying. Um, and That's a great comparison, actually, yeah. In terms of AI. Yeah. Death. And sort of that, um, what it, well, it comes always comes back to uh, Roy Batty. Beg my pardon. Roy. God, I should have known that. Um, we'll do Blade Runner one day. Damn right, we will. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Oh, I because I really wanted to get a Spike Lee film in there. Oh, for your um, 80s for, pick. Yeah. That was my. That would have been very topical if we did do the right thing <laughs> two weeks ago. <laughs> film Spotting did a five five films you should watch given the current events. Oh wow, that. that's cool. Yeah. Do yeah. the right thing. Br- brilliant film. Go watch that as well. Um, yeah, that would have to be my highlight scene as well. Uh, for all of the things that you mentioned, but specifically because, and I didn't, I wasn't able to pull this up. I couldn't find it, but this was the scene that I wrote for my final media exam in high school. Was also the scene I wrote oh, in my final. Oh, we would have been up against each other. Well, yeah, because in Sexually. Australia, the ATAR media <laughs> exam, you watch a DVD and it has a select group yeah. of scenes on it. And this was one of the scenes. Did you also get um that weird shopping one? The guys like collecting trash or something. Yeah. Streets. Yeah, yeah, we get the same. We got the same. Oh god. We get the same DVD. We have we stuff have to, to talk add. about. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I think I have that DVD somewhere. Oh cause... my god, dude. Yeah, somewhere. you should do an episode just on those picks. <laughs> yeah. But we, because what you do is in the ATAR exam, yeah, every student gets a copy of uh, a collection of scenes from films, and mm. then they have to analyze 
those scenes and that scene was one of the scenes on it yeah i think choose. it starts as soon as how how hangs up on him so the the scene that we yeah, have to do open the open the starts with him opening it yep yeah and blasting himself in and watching it with no context and i want to read back what i wrote in the exam because like, i wonder how much i picked up on talk about color a lot i remember oh, you, i talked you kind of have color. to it's like the only thing anyone knew um because it's, it's that and um third man because you had remember, oh wow you did in, third man yeah well in the exams in those types of exams there's a bit of uh weird tangent but it's it's still related it's film related <laughs> um half the exam is you do films that uh, are exterior to the source material given and then the other half yep. was with the source material given so for the n- non-source material i did third man nice so. i cannot for life remember what i would have done but which is i think it's why i did so well because it's such an old film someone whoever whoever read my exam was like "Ooh, this guy right? he actually watches old movies <laughs> i might have done her maybe yeah you probably probably that matched it because i watched her before you second 12th grade. I watched it before 12th grade. I don't know. Interesting. Mm. We both did it. No worries. Well, 2001 A Space Odyssey is currently available on Fox... Foxtel Now. Foxtel Now. And DVD Blu-ray. And various Netflix regions, including Italy, <laughs> if you have a VPN service. I, yeah, I think it's one. a good way to recommend movies, VPN service. That's good. Because it's not illegal at all. It's, it's not illegal at all. No. It's a way no. to do it. I it's see just... promotions for it all the time. VPN yeah. stuff. It's the best way to do it, I reckon. Because you, what you're doing is you're just maximising uh, your range of films you can watch. But it's like you didn't get an intermission on Netflix Italy. That's so. true, and it is two and a half hours long. God, see, I miss films that are this long. We it doesn't get... feel like two and a half hours. That's the key to it. Yeah. I miss... I Do you think intermissions in films should come back? Um, No, because we've got too many multiplexes now. Yeah. So you can't really walk out of an intermission of Avengers Endgame. When te- 20 other cinemas have people walking out as true. well. Very true. Screaming spoilers at Yuzik in particular. Yeah, let's not talk about it. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Jake, uh, what is new in streaming platforms this week? I would jump in to what's new in streaming because it's an interesting week. So Netflix this week, Duffy Bloods. It's spelled Duffy. D-A, the number five, Bloods. That's a lot of Bloods. It's a lot of Bloods. That's like five of them. Season 2 of Dating Around and Season 4 of F is for Family. So I haven't watched it. Got to get on my Bill Burr hype train. Yeah, I'm surprised you haven't watched it yet. I'll get on to it. I just keep forgetting it exists, you know. Um, Disney Plus this Friday, uh, you're going you're gonna to get your usual weekly episodes. Uh, but the only thing, and I swear I already read this, but I'm just going to say it again. Time Scanner Season 1 is coming this Friday. Yeah, I feel like you did read I that before. I swear to God I've already yeah, talked about it. So... Maybe maybe Disney Plus is being weird. It's very oh, fair very enough. Likely. And on stand this week, so this is a really weird week for stand because usually you have like a lot of new shows and stuff come up. So there's a lot of films coming in. Films okay. Like My Night at Maud's, Here is Harold, the first three Jurassic Park films all coming in one hit. The Bridget Jones Diary sequels, well the the original and the sequels and stuff, and Bridesmaids. So, interesting collection of films there. Yeah, I've watched all the Bridget Joneses already, uh, and Bridesmaids. I haven't seen any of them. I haven't seen Bridesmaids. Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I remember laughing. I saw it in the cinema. Right, okay. Yeah. It's fine. I'd watch it again, probably. 
wouldn't feel too bad watching it. But yeah. well, there you go. It's on stand now. You can do just that. <laughs> no worries, Jake. But that's uh, not any of the things we're watching next week on the show. What are we watching though? So next week we're doing our fifties discussion in the Cinema Side Show Countdown Through the Decades retrospective. Thank you, Zeke. <laughs> I wouldn't have got that. Um, so again, the vote. It was quite synonymous this time. Well, I guess it has been the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, but the vote was 34 to 12. <laughs> Unfortunately, the searchers lost. Um, so. It was a valiant fight. <laughs> 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 it's the most one-sided fight ever. Uh, pff, what? You mean Night of the Living Dead versus 2001 yeah, wasn't true. a fight? <laughs> How did you think that? <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think I knew what you had picked when I... Yeah, that's fair. So... That was a little unfair. I was like, oh, Nightmare... Uh, Nightmare. You did win this one, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to catch up. I want to see if we get a perfect five for five. I'd say so. It's You've possible. got a good chance on the next two after this quite easily. There's only two left. Yeah. And I think you've got... You're the favourite in both of them. I think I think so, too. But The 40s might be the... The I'm, 40s is the only one I'm like, I'm not sure yet. The 30s, you'll win. <laughs> you'll win the 30s. Spoiler alert, everybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously, uh, what does that mean uh, we're watching? Well, now that the search is lost, we are watching 12 Angry Men. On the point of that night, a man's life is at stake. I'm just saying it's possible. And I say it's not possible. A dissenting juror in a murder trial slowly manages to convince the others that the case is not as obvious as it seemed in court. This film was directed by Sidney Lumet. Oh, what a man. My boy Sidney. Yeah. Actually, you know what? I saw an interview of him talking about 2001 too. Some really? Ago. Yeah. It's a lot of stuff. Very keen for this one. Yeah, so you haven't seen this before. Negative. I caught this a few months ago. I don't remember if I talked about it on the show. Probably briefly. Probably, yeah, past it. Um, But this film... Not in the way that 2001 blew my mind, but I was just... This was one of those films where it, it absolutely met the expectations I had for it. I've always loved the concept. Mm-hmm. It is the seventh highest rated narrative film of all time on Letterboxd. And I think it's in the top ten for IMDb as well. So people like this film. <laughs> Let's try not to disappoint it. Uh, I think it's an excellent film, and I think you're really going to like it too, Zeke. Sweet. It's been sitting on my shelf for about two years. Oh, is it right there? Yeah, it's it's in the T's because I don't put my numbers oh, first. Oh yeah, as you we don't. Discussed. Well, this is one of the only films where the number is like numbered in the title. Like you look at Twelve Monkeys, it's written T W E such and such yes. and such. This is the only one where it's just spelled twelve, the number twelve. Yeah. So, I think I've always found isn't it grammatically that if it's above the number ten, you should uh, write the number instead of the the word. Oh. I mean that sounds right. I, yeah. I didn't hear it, but that I mean that sounds accurate. Normally, any what about nineteen seventeen. I would have to <laughs> number because it's it's one thousand yeah, nine hundred and seventeen yeah, yeah. technically. Ah, oh, that's true. It's the literal number. What about ten things I had about you? Ten's the last one you can. Oh, or okay. ten's the first one you can do a number. Oh, so it's ten T's. Yeah, yeah. That's disappointing. I think that's how it works. <laughs> it's not like a set rule. It's like a guideline for English. But okay. Anyway, well, boring like, English grammatic. Like like all guidelines, I ignore them all. <laughs> I'm looking forward to watching that next week on the show, Jake. But thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with 12 Angry Men. Grr.